And uh, Sarah Hahn is going to read for us God's Word this morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The word of the Lord. And thank you, Sarah, for bringing us God's word this morning. And uh, if you haven't already, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be referring to the text um, more than once, I believe. We're in the midst of a series on Paul's letter, a short series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This morning we're looking at Ephesians 3. Last week we looked at Ephesians 2. Next Sunday we'll look a little bit at Ephesians 1. Um, Beginning in the month of October, we're going to begin a series on the book of Revelation, and we're inviting everyone to be a part of that study as well. We're going to look at Eugene Peterson's book, Reversed Thunder, And uh, we encourage you to pick up that book. We should have some copies here at the church as well um, if you want to call for one of those. But that'll be beginning in October, probably run through through the entire year. That is 2020, not in the 2021. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, Lately, when I uh, go for a, a walk in, in my neighborhood, I've been noticing more and more yard signs that are out. And those yard signs begin with this phrase, we believe, we believe. Maybe you've seen these around your neighborhood as well. After those words come a whole list of, of things that my neighbors believe in, okay? Um, things like Black Lives Matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Things of that nature. 
Whenever I, I see those signs and I read those first words and I hear them in my head, we believe, my first notion is to think, I ought to put up my own sign in my yard. And it would read this way. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Now, you have to believe this. When I, when I think that, I'm not trying to be a jerk. Okay? And I'm not trying to antagonize any of my neighbors. I'm not even trying to ignore them. I'm not saying that what they believe in is not important. And my sign would not even necessarily contradict many of the things on their signs. In fact, it would actually promote some of those things. But what I would want my sign to communicate is simply that there is another starting point. There is another story, another framework that the world is often not even aware of. But it's another lens through which we as Christians view the world. For instance, let's just think about one of those lines on my neighbor's signs this morning. Let's think of that line, Black Lives Matter. Most of our society tends to think about a line like that, a belief like that, through a certain framework. Okay? There are lots of different frameworks, but they're all working at sort of a human level. All right? They're pretty much human frameworks that put human beings at odds with each other. That's, that's the place where we start. For instance, it might be a political framework, right? The political framework of liberal versus conservative or Republican versus Democrat. And, and it's through that framework that we begin to see everything that's listed on that sign. Which side are you on is our natural question. But it could also be an economic framework that we see everything through. Maybe it's, you know, the haves versus the have-nots. It could be another social framework, like, like law and order versus anarchy. Or it could be a simple racial framework, white versus black. And we see everything through that lens. More often, all of these frameworks get sort of mixed together. They're all tumbled up together and... We view the world, but we don't even really understand what framework it is that we're looking through. It just becomes a framework of division and tension. They're all very... Dive into these other frameworks, but to understand what's really going on in this world, what's really going on in the creation of our God. Now, just in case you're not very familiar with that framework, Paul lays it out for us, okay? And first, we have to ask that question again, what are the powers? And I'll try to explain that, albeit very, very briefly. You can also try to fill in some of the gaps from what we talked about last week. Get, get last week's message, listen to that. Um, but from what we can gather in, in the Scripture, the powers and the authorities were created by God, they were created good, like everything else in his creation. And they were created to promote God's good reign and his shalom in the world. But they rebelled. They rebelled. They refused to do that. 
And now they work against God's shalom. They seek to undercut and destroy the good order of God's creation. These powers, however, they don't work independently from us as human beings. And that's where some of us as Christians want to go. We blame all our ills on the fact that, well, it's happening in the spiritual world. It's the fault of these powers. It's no fault of my own. It sort of takes away that aspect of human responsibility. That's not the way it's presented to us in Scripture. Rather, the way it's presented to us is, is the powers sort of take advantage of our own brokenness, of our own penchant towards sin, our own bent and broken, sinful nature. And what they do then is they raise those sins from a personal level to sort of a systemic level. Okay, They take advantage of the fact that we are broken. Let me just give you two quick examples. Personal greed. Personal greed. We all struggle with greed. Okay, I wish, I'd, I wish I'd just made a little more money. Just a little more. It doesn't have to be a lot, but I wish I made a little more money. Then I would be happy. There are personal sins like that that we deal with. But when you put my greed together with your greed and your greed and your greed, it can become a corporate sort of greed. Right? In fact, we even talk about corporate greed. Right? Where you see a corporation that might be made up of lots of good, wonderful people, but in the end, let's say they make a product like an airplane or an automobile. And they're under a lot of pressure to make sure that the stock keeps rising, that they meet their investors' goals. And so maybe, just maybe, a product is pushed into production before it should be, before it's ready to be, before it's safe. We see these sorts of things happening. We call them corporate greed. That's the influence of the powers. I'll give you another example. The powers seem to promote racial and other social divides. All right? What they do is they might take my good desire to live a safe and quiet life, which is very biblical. My good desire to live a safe and quiet life, and they might nudge me to turn that desire into an idol where pretty soon I will do anything to possess or to protect that safe, quiet life. Or they might take my good desire for peace, right? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. It's a good, God-given desire. But they might allow that desire to evolve into avoidance of conflict at any cost. And that soon might manifest itself in apathy. It might manifest itself in cowardice, where I'm even among friends and people that I love, and I hear one kind of racist statement, but I don't want to say anything because it might cause trouble. That can evolve then into even condoning and tolerating and sanctioning evil. You see how a good desire, just the desire for peace, can be twisted and turned and bent and perverted into something different. Paul says, this is what we have to recognize. 
We have to recognize the powers. We have to recognize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against something far more than that. This is a spiritual struggle that Paul describes here in his letter to the Ephesians. It's a struggle between God and the powers. And Paul announces here that God has triumphed over the powers through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And God has exalted Jesus far above the rulers and authorities and has placed all things in subjection under his feet. What he's saying is the powers have been defanged. They have lost their leverage due to the gospel. And this is the framework that Paul wants you and me to see the world through. It's a struggle, but it's one in which Jesus Christ has been victorious. Which raises another question. How do we know this? How do we know that Jesus Christ has triumphed? How do we know that, especially in a day, in an age, when it seems like conflict is everywhere around us, right? Everywhere. When a benign statement like Black Lives Matter can cause so much dissension. How do we know that Jesus Christ has indeed triumphed? Here's the answer. The church. The answer is the church. That's how we know. Ephesians 3, verse 8, if you have your Bibles open, this is what Paul says. This grace was given to me to do two things. To preach to the Gentiles, and second, to make plain, what does he say? To make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Now, what that means is to make plain, it's to make known this mystery, all right? But who's the audience? Who is Paul to make that known to? Well, the audience you find in in verse 10 of that chapter. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. That's the audience. Paul is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and he is to make known to the powers the mystery of of what God is doing in this world. What are we saying here? Okay? Holy Hill is just a couple of drives via Gulf um, to our north, right? It's, a, it's the kind of place that people love to drive to. They'll, they'll get in the car and drive miles on a beautiful fall, sunny day. And as they get closer and closer to Holy Hill, they'll see the beautiful spire They'll say, wow, isn't that nice? And it's such a pastoral scene. It's such a calming scene. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, right? That's sort of how we think of the church these days. That's how our world thinks of the church. They don't think of what goes on inside that church. They don't think of the body of believers inside that church. They, they see a steeple and they think, what a beautiful thing. This is not, not, the church that Paul is referring to here in Ephesians 2 and 3. The unified church, the church of Jews and Gentiles gathered together with no more walls between them is proof to the powers and principalities of this world that they have been defeated by Jesus Christ 
on the cross. And they are being completely vanquished from this world even now. Think for a moment of the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2 of Ephesians. There Paul is speaking about the church. And he's speaking about how in Christ God has united Jew and Gentile. And he's brought them together and he's building them up into a building. He's building them up into a church. And then he suddenly launches into temple language. Temple language. He says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Why the temple all of a sudden? Why not the church? Why the temple? Well, because we're in a battle. That's how Paul sees this. We're in a battle. God versus the powers. Jesus Christ versus the powers, which means us versus the powers. A little background here. In Israel, the temple was considered to be the place of God's presence. This is where he dwelt. This was his throne room. But it wasn't just Israel that thought this way. It was all the nations that thought this way. They all had temples to their gods, and that's the place where they believed their gods dwelt. Now, when these nations went to battle with each other, okay, what they believed was that was just a manifestation of what was actually happening in the heavens. And what was happening in the heavens was the gods from a, nation A were fighting the gods of nation B. And so at the end of that battle, whatever nation won, it was just a sign that their God had been victorious. And when your God was victorious, what you would do is you would gather at the temple of your God and you would sing the praises of your God and how your God was the most powerful God over all the other gods. In fact, they would take it to the point where the, the victorious nation would go into the temple of the defeated nation and they would remove that nation's gods and they would set up their own gods. This even happened in Israel in that intertestamental time. You can read all about it. It's a terrible phase in the history of Israel. But that's what would happen. The victorious nation would set up their own gods in the temple of their enemies and they would proclaim that their god had won the victory. Paul says that when God defeated the powers and the principalities, he built his unified church into a temple. He built it into a temple, a temple that would serve as a monument, a lasting monument to his victory. And God would display his church, that temple, before all the nations of the world, before all the powers and principalities, so they would be forced to take note that Jesus Christ was victorious. And notice what Paul says about that temple. He says that it's not like his people simply gather at the temple, but his people gather as the temple. In other words, Jesus Christ fills his people. He fills us with his presence. We are the presence of God in this world. Remember the larger story, right? The big story. When God created this world, he considered his creation to be his temple. And we as his people were to live in honor to him, unified with one another, glorifying our God. We threw that all away through our sinfulness. And God removed his presence from this world. But in Jesus Christ... God has come back. 
And in Jesus Christ, God's presence fills his church. And this is a sign to all of the powers and principalities that God is back. And history is being reversed. The presence of God, as we said earlier in our worship, is expanding and filling the earth once again. And so whenever the powers look at the church of Jesus Christ, they're devastated, reminded of their defeat, reminded of the fact that they no longer have any grip on this world. And so the church, you see, is more than a, it's more than a pretty steeple. The church makes the powers tremble because they see their end in the church. They see their demise in the church. But that's a church that's functioning as the church of Jesus Christ really ought to function. But let's move on because it's, it's not only important that we understand that God has triumphed. We need to understand how God has triumphed. Okay? We need to understand how God has triumphed. And this is actually what much of chapter 3 is about. When Paul begins chapter 3, the very first thing he announces is that he is the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. The first thing he announces that is that he's a prisoner. And he really is. Okay? This letter, we believe, was written when Paul was actually a prisoner. God triumphs, in other words, through weakness. If you were to look at Paul in those days, sitting in a prison cell, all alone, his peers, the people around him, would have looked at him like a failure, like he was a failure. In fact, the powers, I'm sure, exalted in the fact that there sat Paul, looking foolish and weak. He could do nothing. What could Paul do? And yet Paul revels in the fact that he is a prisoner. You see, in Paul's mind, this isn't a negative. This is a positive. This is a positive to him. Paul says, I am weak. I'm a prisoner. The only thing I can do is write these letters and preach the gospel. That's all I can do. But what happens when Paul preaches the gospel? People believe. And when people believe, the church is built. When the church is built, God holds up his church before the powers and says, you're on your way out. You're on your way out. You see, the point here is not that God can still work through a person even when they're in prison. Paul's point, rather, is there could not be a more perfect situation than for me to be in prison. Why don't we understand that? Because we don't understand that we are in a spiritual battle. And when you're in a spiritual battle, you don't fight by human means. You fight a different way. You fight a cruciform way. Like Jesus Christ fought. Remember that when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross on Golgotha, the powers were were laughing and screaming, believing that they had won. 
And what they didn't know was that in Jesus' defeat was their defeat. That in Jesus' defeat, we saw the incredible power of God at work. And friends, that's what we have to understand, that we are in a spiritual battle. We don't fight using human resources. We fight like Jesus fought. That's why Paul brings this whole notion up. I am a prisoner. I'm as weak as Jesus Christ was. And therefore, God will work through that weakness to show his power. Remember the the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark? The very first one. If you haven't seen it, um, if you have seen it, you'll remember one scene. Harrison Ford is running away from his enemies. They're coming after him fast. They want to kill him. And all of a sudden, this big guy steps out in front of him and he's got these swords. And he's whipping them around and he's twirling them in his hands. And you can tell he's going to dice and he's going to slice and dice Harrison Ford up. And, and, and Ford's just kind of looking at him and then he looks behind him again and he sees the people chasing him, realizes he doesn't have any time, finally he just pulls out a gun and he shoots the guy and he falls down. I think that's where that phrase came from, you don't bring a sword or a knife to a gunfight, right? That's the whole point. But in sort of an ironic twist, friends, you and I are often bringing a sword to a spiritual gunfight. We want to fight with human resources when those have absolutely no effect in a spiritual battle, at least not a positive effect. Timothy Gombus writes this. He says, In our current sinful state, we're overwhelmed at the complexity and perverted brilliance of evil. And, and what he's getting at there is, because of our brokenness, we can't even imagine how to begin to fight this battle. Our minds just don't work that way. We just go back to the same things we've always tried in the past. And they don't work. In fact, they just make the situation worse and worse. I'll give you two examples. Exploited and oppressed people long for justice. And justice is a genuine human desire. It's a good desire. It fits fits right in with God's mission in this world. But because our minds and our imaginations are broken and perverted, the strategies that we often map out to gain that justice, to achieve that desired good, often the methods that we use just create more destruction and more enslavement. They don't achieve what we want to achieve. For instance, we believe in the myth of redemptive violence. We always go back to that. It's all over Hollywood. It's all over the internet. It's that idea that we can gain justice through retaliation. Okay? We're going to fight back. We're going to get these people back for what they did to us. And finally, we're going to have justice. We've seen this around us, right? In so many of the rallies that have turned violent in the end. Now, there have been so many peaceful ones, a lot more peaceful ones, but when they turn violent, this is what, what's going on. 
right? We'll retaliate and find justice. But what happens instead is that desire for justice just leads to deepening patterns of injustice and more conflict. Because we're, we're trying human means to fight a spiritual battle. I'll give you a second example. Let's say we just want peace. That's the good thing that we want. We just want peace. But what's our human answer to how we find that? How do we pursue that peace? Well, often our answer is to run, to flee, to put some space between ourselves and the issues. Right? So we avoid them. We avoid certain parts of town. We move a little further into the country. And we figure by doing this, we're going to create peace. But just like those who pursue the myth of violence, we simply end up exacerbating the problem. Because the Christians who have an answer aren't conversing. We're not in the midst of the struggle, talking and trying to figure things out. Instead, we're following very human answers to how to fight a struggle like this. And the powers are smiling. The powers are thinking they haven't learned anything from Jesus at all. This is why Paul points us to the living example of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over. That cruciform life that is willing to suffer, that's willing to be a slave, that's willing to go to death in order to be obedient to the Father in heaven and in order to love his neighbors. This is the life that Jesus lays out for us. This is the life that we are called to live. The life the church is called to live, to put fear back in the minds of the powers and principalities. So let me just ask the question, what does this mean for how you and I can approach a racial divide that's among us today? And let me just share with you um, some cruciform examples of how we can begin, I think, to fight a fight like this. And as I offer these things, okay, these are not the ultimate answer, but I hope that what they do is simply spur our own imaginations, empowered by Christ, to think along the lines of, how, what does it mean for me to live a cruciform life? What does it mean for me to adopt this kind of living in this world? So let me just lay out a couple of things, okay? First of all, consider it our problem. Consider it our problem. What I, what I mean by this is a while back I was driving down 41, 45, would have been over here somewhere, out in Menominee Falls, and I just noticed that, that huge pile of trash, right? There's a huge landfill off on the, the east side of the highway. And the person I was riding with, I just simply said something about, wow, that's just, that's a lot of garbage. And um, their response was, yeah, I'm just glad I don't live there. Um, 
And, and that's often our natural response, right? I'm just glad it's not in my backyard. And then we sort of, we sort of grieve with those people for a, a brief moment who might live in that setting and have to deal with you know, the smells and the noise and all of it. But then we go on with our lives because it's not my problem. And friends, I think sometimes we want to do that with the issue of, of race as well. We want to say, but it's not my problem. And I think a more cruciform way of living, a more cruciform approach would simply be to say, it is my problem. It's not just someone else's. And to remember that um, a lot of the people who are suffering in this world are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And therefore, it has to be our problem. Okay, So that's just the first thing. The second thing would be pray for the black church. Pray for the African-American church. I, I mentioned this last week, that after the Jacob Blake uh, shooting in, in Kenosha, there was a press conference. And at that press conference, it was opened by um, Jacob Blake's mother's pastor. And then the mother herself um, made an opening statement. And if you would have heard those two speak, they spoke the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was amazing. They talked about him. They talked about what he had done in this world, how he gave his life for us all, how he brought peace between the races. It was incredible. And, and I was thinking, I'm listening to this on a major radio station and thinking, nobody's cutting them off. I mean, if, if you or I were to speak the gospel in a setting like that, somebody would step in and say, uh, we need a commercial break. We don't want to hear this stuff about Jesus. Friends, I think something we have to realize in our time is that in the white evangelical world, um, the world doesn't like us. Whether that's fair or not, the world sees us negatively, and when we start talking about Jesus Christ, it's a negative message. But right now, in this time, the African-American church is speaking from a place of suffering and weakness, and the world is allowing them to speak. And the world is listening. And if you think about it, it's in weakness that we see the power of God. And so, you and I, we might not be able to speak in a way that everyone listens, but we can pray for our brothers and sisters who can. And pray hard that they will be faithful to the gospel, that they will speak it well, and that God will move through their speaking. Pray. Another thing, which is just a small thing, but we can review our history. Read a book. Read a book. Read a book written by an African-American author. Whether it's the history of our country, the history of the church, just do a little reading. It, 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 it amazes me, friends. We will talk about Nazi Germany and the things that happened there. And we will condemn, rightfully, 
uh, the killing of millions of Jews. We'll do the same thing about the Stalin era, era in the Soviet Union. But when we look at our own history, we sort of, we clean it all up. There was a time in the history of our country, even leading up to when our country was organized, there were almost 12 million Africans that were transported over the ocean into the Americas. We know that over 2 million of those people died on the passage itself, in the ships, being treated like cattle. More people died in Africa itself because when the slave traders came, they ran, some committed suicide so that they would not have to get on those boats. Millions of people. And yet, do we talk about it? Do we even acknowledge it or do we gloss over it? Just do a little reading. Not like it's hidden information or it's secret information. It's out there. Another thing is, is, is to show a little empathy. And I'm, I'm almost done. Just to show a little empathy. And what I mean here is after George Floyd, um, after he died in, in Minneapolis, I know a lot of people in, in my circles um, initially were saying, <clears throat> um, well, just wait till the whole story comes out because he must have done something to deserve what he got. Okay? He must have done something to deserve what he got. I was listening to a, a, a podcast. It, it's put out by a group of pastor theologians. And um, on that podcast, Eric Redman um, spoke. Eric is a, a professor at Moody Bible Institute in, in Chicago. He's a pastor of a church there as well. And um, he was sort of asked, you know, how should people, especially in the white community, how should we think about things like that? How do we handle things when our first, our first premonition is just to go, like, well, he must have done something wrong? Kind of this presumption of, of guilt. And, and he laid out the example. He said, think of, think of your own kids. You get a call from the school, and many of us have had this. Your kid is in the principal's office. The principal and the teacher are there. They want you to come and meet and talk about what the kid did wrong. And your kid's got a little bit of a history of, of doing things that he or she probably shouldn't do. But he says, what attitude do you go into that meeting with? Do you immediately jump to the conclusion that your kid screwed up again and he ought to get the punishment that he's due? Or do you have this love for your child where you go to that meeting and, and you just hold these things in tension, right? That I'm sure the teacher and the principal aren't making things up. But at the same time, I love my child. He says... You know, they misunderstood, they've got it wrong, he knows the real story, he just wants a chance to share it. When you go into that meeting, you first go as an advocate for your child. Again, holding intention that there's probably more that might come out, that might change your thinking. But the first thing you do is you just show a little empathy, sympathy for your child. Let him know you love him, let him know you support him. Eric says, that's all. That's all you can do, really. 
But it's a lot. It's a lot. The next thing and the last thing I'll say is this. Just, just be the church. Be the church. Even if you're not a multiracial church, which we are not, there are things that we can do. Okay? Again, Eric Redman was asked this question by his white friend. He said, you know, how do we respond as a white community to our black Christian friends in a time like this? And Eric simply gave the example. He said, shortly after this happened, he got a text from one of his white pastor friends. And the pastor simply said this. He said, this morning I woke up at 4 a.m. processing the news stories, a series of news that's impacting black lives right now, impacting all of us, really. And he said, I started to pray for you and your family. I just want to know how you're doing. And Eric said, that was, that was such a simple thing, but it was one of the most powerful things for him in that moment. Just to know that there were other fellow believers out there who knew that this could be a scary, angry, grievous time for him and for his wife and for his children. And he just wanted to say, I'm praying for you. Sympathize with what you're going through. I can't fix it. But I want you to know we care. That's a place to start. It might look weak. It might look foolish in the eyes of the world. But friends, I guarantee you, when the powers see things like that, they shudder. Because they know that Jesus Christ triumphed. And their time is short. Do you know someone? If you don't, Maybe that's the place to start. If you do, just reach out. Say, hey, thinking of you. Love you. In Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Jesus Christ, you are the victorious Lord. Your name has been lifted up above all other names. They bow before you. And Jesus Christ, you are not just the Lord, you are our Lord. You are the Lord of your church. And may we, as your church, manifest your lordship to all the powers and principalities of this world. May we be more than just a pretty steeple. In Jesus' name, amen.